last several days and have already raised serious issues and flaws that should concern all New Yorkers. Because when there is a bias or a lack of fairness in the justice system, it is a concern for everyone, not just those immediately affected. The most serious allegations made against me had no credible factual basis in the report. And there is a difference between alleged improper conduct and concluding sexual harassment. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not to say that there are not 11 women who I truly offended. There are. And for that, I deeply, deeply apologize. I thought a hug and putting my arm around a staff person while taking a picture was friendly. But she found it to be too forward. I kissed a woman on the cheek at a wedding, and I thought I was being nice, but she felt that it was too aggressive. I have slipped and called people honey, sweetheart, and darling. I meant it to be endearing, but women found it dated and offensive. I said on national TV to a doctor wearing PPE and giving me a COVID nasal swab, you make that gown look good. I was joking. Obviously, otherwise I wouldn't have said it on national TV. But she found it disrespectful. I take full responsibility for my actions. I have been too familiar with people. My sense of humor can be insensitive and off-putting. I do hug and kiss people casually, women and men. I have done it all my life. It's who I've been since I can remember. In my mind, I've never crossed the line with anyone. But I didn't realize the extent to which the line has been redrawn. There are generational and cultural shifts that I just didn't fully appreciate. And I should have. No excuses. The report did bring to light a matter that I was not aware of and that I would like to address. A female trooper relayed a concern that she found disturbing, and so do I. Please let me provide some context. The governor's trooper detail had about 65 troopers on it. But of the 65, only six women and nine black troopers. I'm very proud of the diversity of my administration. It's more diverse than any administration in history. And I'm very proud of the fact that I have more women in senior positions than any governor before me. The lack of diversity on the state police detail was an ongoing disappointment for me. In many ways, the governor's detail is the face of state government that people see. When I attend an event, people see the detail that's with me. I was continuously trying to recruit more to diversify. On one occasion, I met two female troopers who were on duty at an event. 
both seemed competent and impressive, and I asked the state police to see if they were interested in joining. I often meet people, men and women, and if they show promise, I refer them to be interviewed. The state police handled the interviewing and the hiring, and one of the two troopers eventually joined the detail. I got to know her over time, and she's a great professional. And I would sometimes banter with her when we were in the car. She spends a lot of time driving around the state. This female trooper was getting married, and I made some jokes about the negative consequences of married life. I meant it to be humorous. She was offended, and she was right. The trooper also said that in an elevator, I touched her back, and when I was walking past her in a doorway, I touched her stomach. Now, I don't recall doing it, but if she said I did it, I believe her. At public events, troopers will often hold doors open or guard the doorway. When I walk past them, I often will give them a grip of the arm, a pat on the face, a touch on the stomach, a slap on the back. It's my way of saying, I see you, I appreciate you, and I thank you. I'm not comfortable just walking past and ignoring them. Of course, usually they are male troopers. In this case, I don't remember doing it at all. I didn't do it consciously with the female trooper. I did not mean any sexual connotation. I did not mean any intimacy by it. I just wasn't thinking. It was totally thoughtless in the literal sense of the word. But it was also insensitive. It was embarrassing to her. And it was disrespectful. It was a mistake plain and simple. I have no other words to explain it. I want to personally apologize to her and her family. I have the greatest respect for her and for the New York State Police. Now, obviously in a highly political matter like this, there are many agendas and there are many motivations at play. If anyone thought otherwise, they would be naive, and New Yorkers are not naive. But I want to thank the women who came forward with sincere complaints. It's not easy to step forward, but you did an important service. And you taught me, and you taught others an important lesson. Personal boundaries must be expanded and must be protected. I accept full responsibility. Part of being New York tough is being New York smart. New York smart tells us that this situation and moment are not about the facts. It's not about the truth. It's not about thoughtful analysis. It's not about how do we make the system better. This is about politics. And our political system today is too often driven by the extreme.
Rashness has replaced reasonableness. Loudness has replaced soundness. Twitter has become the public square for policy debate. There is an intelligent discussion to be had on gender-based actions, on generational and cultural behavioral differences, on setting higher standards, and finding reasonable resolutions. But the political environment is too hot, and it is too reactionary for that now. And it is unfortunate. Now, you know me. I am a New Yorker, born and bred. I am a fighter. And my instinct is to fight through this controversy because I truly believe it is politically motivated. I believe it is unfair and it is untruthful. And I believe it, it demonizes behavior that is unsustainable for society. If I could communicate the facts through the frenzy, New Yorkers would understand. I believe that. But when I took my oath as governor, then it changed. I became a fighter, but I became a fighter for you. And it is your best interest that I must serve. This situation, by its current trajectory will generate months of political and legal controversy. That is what is going to happen. That is how the political wind is blowing. It will consume government. It will cost taxpayers millions of dollars. It will brutalize people. The State Assembly yesterday outlined weeks of process that will then lead to months of litigation. Time and money that government should spend managing COVID, guarding against the Delta variant, reopening up states, fighting gun violence, and saving New York City. All that time would be wasted. This is one of the most challenging times for government in a generation. Government really needs to function today. Government needs to perform. It is a matter of life and death, government operations. And wasting energy on distractions is the last thing that state government should be doing. And I cannot be the cause of that. New York tough means New York loving, and I love New York, and I love you, and everything I have ever done has been motivated by that love, and I would never want to be unhelpful in any way, and I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. And therefore, that's what I'll do, because I work for you. And doing the right thing is doing the right thing for you. 
because as we say, it's not about me, it's about we. Kathy Hopel, my lieutenant governor, is smart and confident. This transition must be seamless. We have a lot going on. I'm very worried about the Delta variant, and so should you be. But she can come up to speed quickly, and my resignation will be effective in 14 days. To my team, Melissa DeRosa, Robert Mejica, Beth Garvey, Stephanie Fenton, Dana Caratanudo, Kelly Cummings, Rich Azapardi, Howard Zucker, Rick Cotton, John Lieber, Jack Davies, and the hundreds of dedicated administration officials. I want to say this. Thank you. Thank you. And be proud. We made New York State the progressive capital of the nation. No other state government accomplished more to help people. And that is what it's all about. Just think about what we did. We passed marriage equality, creating a new civil right, legalized love for the LGBTQ community. And we generated a force for change that swept the nation. We passed the SAFE Act years ago, the smartest gun safety law in the United States of America, and it banned the madness of assault weapons. We've saved countless, the madness of assault weapons. We've saved countless lives with that law. $15 minimum wage, the highest minimum wage in the nation, lifting millions of families' standard of living, putting more food on the table and clothes on their backs. And we led the nation in economic justice with that reform. Today we're coming on the air because Andrew Cuomo, the embattled governor of New York, is still speaking to his state and has just announced that he intends to step down. He explained his reasons just a moment ago. And I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. And therefore that's what I'll do. Because I work for you. And doing the right thing is doing the right thing for you. Because as we say, it's not about me. It's about we. Kathy Hochul, my lieutenant governor, is smart and competent. This transition must be seamless. We have a lot going on. I'm very worried about the Delta variant. And so should you be. But she can come up to speed quickly, and my resignation will be effective in 14 days. To my team, Just Melissa DeRosa, Robert Mejica, Beth Garvey. After, uh, a long statement by his lawyer, Rita Glavin, who said the report that came out last week accusing the governor of sexual harassment was not fair to him. Here's more of what the governor is saying. On a personal note. In many ways, I see the world through the eyes of my daughters, Tara, Mariah, and Michaela. They are 26 and 26, twins, and 23. And I have lived this experience with and through them. I have sat on the couch with them, hearing the ugly accusations for weeks. I have seen the look in their eyes 
and the expression on their faces. And it hurt. I want my three jewels to know this. My greatest goal is for them to have a better future than the generations of women before them. It is still in many ways a man's world. It always has been. We have sexism that is culturalized and institutionalized. My daughters have more talent and natural, natural gifts than I ever had. I want to make sure that society allows them to fly as high as their wings will carry them. There should be no assumptions, no stereotypes, no limitations. I want them to know from the bottom of my heart that I never did and I never would intentionally disrespect a woman or treat any woman differently than I would want them treated. And that is the God's honest truth. Your dad made mistakes. And he apologized. And he learned from it. And that's what life is all about. And I know the political process is flawed. And I understand their cynicism and distrust and disappointment now. But don't give it up. Because government is still the best vehicle for making positive social change. Lastly, I want to remind all New Yorkers of an important lesson. And one that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. And that's what you New Yorkers did in battling COVID. The enemy landed in New York State. COVID launched the attack here. It came on planes from Europe, and we had no idea. It was an ambush, and it was up to New Yorkers to fight back. We were on our own, and it was war. Nurses, doctors, essential workers became our frontline heroes. Hospitals became the battlegrounds. Streets were still, and sirens filled the city's silence. Trailers carried the bodies of our fallen brothers and sisters. But you refused to give up, and you fought back, and you won, going from the highest infection rate in the nation to one of the lowest. No one thought we could do it. But you did it. You led the nation, and you showed the way forward. And how you did it is what's most important. You did it together, not as black New Yorkers or white New Yorkers, not as LGBTQ New Yorkers or straight New Yorkers or Democrats or Republicans or upstate or downstate or Jewish, Muslim, Protestant or Catholic New Yorkers, but as one community, one family, the family of New York. You overcame the naysayers and the haters and the fear and the division, and you unified and you rose and you overcame and you saved lives. And that was powerful in its effect. It was beautiful to see, and it was an honor to lead. Please remember that lesson. Hold it dear and hold it up high for this nation to see.
because it is New York State at her finest, creating her legacy, fulfilling her destiny, giving life and animation to the lady in the harbor, saying, Excelsior, we can be better, we can reach higher, and proclaiming e pluribus unum, out of many, one, unity, community, love. That is our founding premise and our enduring promise. And that is the salvation of this nation that it so desperately needs to be. Thank you for the honor of serving you. It has been the honor of my lifetime. God bless you. Governor Cuomo's bombshell announcement came after nearly an hour of defense, first from his lawyer, Rita Glavin, who said the report that came out last week accusing the governor of sexual harassment was unfair, didn't include witnesses who discredited some of the allegations, did not include his answers, and treated some of these statements as sexual misconduct or sexual harassment when they were simply innocent uh, gestures on the part of the governor which was a theme that he began his uh, statement by repeating. He said uh, there, are, uh, there were not sexual, there were not 11 cases of sexual harassment. There are 11 women that I offended and I apologize. I've been too familiar with people. I hugged and kissed men and women, but I didn't realize how the lines have been withdrawn. And he said the attacks were driven by politics, that his instinct was to fight them, but that that would not be in the best interest of the state. NBC's Kathy Parks is outside the uh, State House in Albany. Kathy, did they see this coming? Pete, good afternoon to you. I think this is a shock that is affecting everyone here in Albany. Just moments again, after the announcement was made, that, there were uh, a couple of people here in I'd like to address uh, several.
Kelly, thank you. I want to bring in Danny Savalos, a CC News legal analyst. Uh, Danny, the president or the governor said basically this is a political decision that he didn't want to fight it for political reasons. But what legal problems does he still have? A number. For example, he faces potential civil liability, assuming statutes and limitations have not expired. He does face potential criminal liability, and then he would also face the possibility of impeachment, which looks cosmetically like a trial, but it's really a political event. And in New York, it has the added curiosity of the Senate uh, sitting in sitting in judgment of him, uh, along with the uh, seven justices of the Court of Appeals. Uh, Danny, the uh, what about the, the the case that the governor's uh, lawyer made earlier today that she thought that the report that came out, A, has been mischaracterized in some of the public reporting about it, but B, that it was weak, that it, that it was basically a report in search of a conclusion and wasn't fair to him. Ms. Lavin does make the important point that this report uh, is thorough, it may be uh, produced by able counsel, but it's not a report that's been subjected to the adversarial system. It has not been subjected, or the witnesses have not been subjected to the crucible of cross-examination. It's a report that was prepared and then just put out there into the ether. And for that reason, uh, Lavin pointed out, I think effectively on Friday, that, uh, that prosecutors should be careful and not adopt it wholesale. Because uh, Ms. Lavin put, uh, for example, their own alternate timeline where they conducted their own investigation. And they gave the defense team, or I should say Cuomo's attorneys, gave a glimpse, uh, a preview of what it would look like if a prosecutor were to roll the dice and take a chance in prosecuting Andrew Cuomo. You may believe every word in the report issued by the AG's office, uh, but once it goes through the adversarial process and witnesses are cross-examined, that's where you find out if this is a case a prosecutor can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And that is the standard prosecutors are bound to ethically. They must believe they can prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt, not just that they can get an indictment and take a chance at trial. And, of course, it's well to remember that this report was actually requested by the governor. NBC News' Chuck Todd is standing by now. Chuck, uh, this is a bombshell. Uh, are you surprised? I'm surprised it came this quickly. I'm not surprised that this is the ultimate result. Indeed, I had talked to some folks very close to the governor last week who said, look, he's not in a place for resignation right now, but he will be. And the reason that they, uh, this, this person felt confident that he'd get there, Pete, is simply uh, the long game here. If he went through, if he forced an impeachment process, number one, he'd have to, he's going to have to deal with the various, uh, perhaps, rip and rip and criminal exposures he is, that you've been talking about here, whether it's at the Albany Sheriff's Department or wherever. But with impeachment came a permanent ban on ever holding office. This is a person who's never known anything else in his life than elected politics whether working for his father uh, or uh, eventually running for office himself, he believes there is another day for him someday. He's going to eternally believe this. Had he gone through the impeachment process, he'd have been permanently barred. Now, Cuomo not being able to run for dog catcher, anything, that's not something he was going to be comfortable with. So I'm surprised how quickly he came to this conclusion. Not surprised, according to people that I've been talking to close to him, that ultimately this is the result.
So when you say with impeachment came disqualification, you, you mean like in the federal system, impeachment first, but upon conviction they could separately vote to bar impeachment. New York State had a basically a similar punishment where he would not be able to hold any office in in New York State uh, had he been convicted uh, in, in an impeachment trial. So in the same, you know, that was obviously something that uh, was thought about with the second Trump impeachment trial. That was something that uh, his people thought could be a way to convince him to do something. All right, Chuck Todd, thank you very much. Andrew Cuomo stepping down after serving three terms as governor, soon to be succeeded by New York's first female governor. More on this throughout the day on MSNBC and tonight on NBC Nightly News. For now, I'm Drew This was about building a case against Governor Cuomo. The investigators, if you go through the report with a discerning eye and give it the scrutiny that it deserves, it failed to collect relevant evidence. The investigators credited people that they know had lied in the past or had motives to lie. And the report didn't explore this or any of it. This is about the veracity and the credibility of a report that is being used to impeach and take down an elected official. Let me start with some of the facts that the report got wrong, the report that the media has repeatedly credited uh, and not bothered to present the other side. The report concluded page 24 and on page 142, affirmatively concluded that the governor groped Ms. Canuso on November 16th of 2020. Concluded it definitively. And at the Attorney General's press conference on August 3rd, one of the investigators, Ann Clark, said it definitively to the world that Governor Cuomo groped the breast of an executive assistant in the mansion during the workday. But what was so apparent when I read the report is that the investigators didn't bother to collect or review evidence about November 16th to determine if their conclusion was correct. And everyone has to ask themselves, why didn't they do that? Why didn't they get all of the emails from that day? Why didn't they get the records about when Ms. Caniso entered and left the mansion? Why didn't they speak to any of the witnesses? And there were many who were in the mansion that day. They didn't collect the documents that proved the most serious allegation was false. Records from the mansion reflect that senior members of staff were present there on November 16th, and the investigators did not ask, they did not ask any of those people about what they saw, what they heard, what Ms. Camisa was doing that day. Her version of events, which she conveyed to the Times Union in an April 7th anonymous interview, about the amount of time that she was in the mansion and what she was in the mansion for, they don't match it up with the documentary evidence. 
and the investigators didn't get that. And now we are in a situation where, as of yesterday, uh, I read the Albany Times Union, and it says that the governor groped her around November 25th, is what she is saying. As I've said before, my team has looked through the records for November, and we're aware of no record indicating that Brittany Chamisa was at the mansion in November on any other day than November 16th. And Ms. Chamiso has consistently said this occurred in November. Why did the investigators not get the records, and why did they not include them in the report? What else was so bothersome and very hard for me to take as a lawyer uh, for the governor is that the report suggests that the governor testified falsely about that day. It suggests that when the governor said others were present, including maybe up to 10 staff members in the mansion, the report just discredited him. But I now know that they did not bother to get the records in the email that reflected who was in the mansion that day. In fact, the, the documents proved that the governor testified truthfully. Numerous staff were present, including Mr. Melissa DeRosa, Stephanie Benton, and Peter Jimian, and the staff that is around there all throughout the day helping out with various things within the mansion. Ms. Chamiso was there for three hours. She was there to work on a speech. She wasn't there to fix a technical issue with the governor's phone, which is what she told the Times Union. And Ms. Chamiso said that at some point during this day that the governor shut the door so hard, so hard, and then groped her, that she thought for sure someone must think, hey, what's going on? Did they hear that? The Attorney General's investigators did not ask the witnesses who were in the mansion that day about what they heard and what they saw. And during the governor's testimony on July 17th, the investigators told the governor unequivocally, unequivocally, that this occurred on November 16th. So why not ask the people they were, that were there? Ask yourselves that question and whether this report was meant to be thorough and fair and to give everyone a balanced view to draw conclusions the report also states, uh, and the Attorney General has stated, that Ms. Chamisa's claim of a sexual assault uh, on November 16th or November 25th, or another day in November, was independently corroborated. And that's not true. The only corroborated fact is that she first made her claim in March, after the investigation began. 